Hello, I'm Kevin Fernando, a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to our new season of GP Notebook Podcasts, bite-sized regular chats for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Kevin Fernando for more clinical tips and hacks relevant to all of us working in primary care. And also visit www.gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and download free resources and shortcuts. So in this podcast, I'm going to talk about investigating vitamin B12 deficiency and pernicious anemia in primary care. Vitamin B12 deficiency is commonly encountered in primary care. And during this COVID-19 pandemic, intramuscular vitamin B12 supplementation has posed a particular challenge to administer while simultaneously trying to reduce the risk of COVID-19 infection. British Society of Haematology guidance has changed on several occasions regarding this and I will cover the latest iteration of their guidance published during May 2020. Other key references for this podcast include a BMJ Easily Missed article on pernicious anemia published during April 2020 and another BMJ Rational Testing article on investigating vitamin B12 deficiency published during May 2019. There are links to these papers, the British Society of Haematology guidance and other key references in the show notes for this podcast, as well as key take-home messages. So why do we need vitamin B12? Well, vitamin B12 is required for the formation of red blood cells and also the maintenance of the myelin sheath surrounding nerve fibres. Hence, the common consequences of vitamin B12 deficiency of anemia and neuropathy. Mammals, including humans, are not able to synthesize vitamin B12 on their own and therefore have to look to dietary sources. Vitamin B12 is found in liver, salmon, tuna, eggs, chicken and other meats, fortified cereals and dairy products which is why those who are vegetarian or vegan are at increased risk of nutritional or dietary vitamin B12 deficiency. Now, vitamin B12 is absorbed in the terminal portion of the small bowel, the ileum, and this absorption is dependent on intrinsic factor, which is a glycoprotein produced by the gastric parietal cells. In pernicious anemia, there is autoimmune destruction of these gastric parietal cells, leading to an intrinsic factor deficiency and subsequent vitamin B12 deficiency. Additionally, surgical procedures such as gastrectomy and bariatric surgery can also lead to vitamin B12 deficiency, as can other malabsorptive conditions such as age-related atrophic gastritis, helicobacter pylori infection, pancreatic insufficiency, and inflammatory bowel disease. Furthermore, vitamin B12 deficiency can also be drug-induced. Chronic PPI use, for example, omeprazole, chronic H2 receptor antagonist use, for example, ranitidine, 
metformin and also the combined oral contraceptive pill can all lead to low vitamin B12 levels. Rarely, myeloma and severe neutropenia can also cause low vitamin B12 levels. So how common is vitamin B12 deficiency? Well, the prevalence of vitamin B12 deficiency is around 6 to 12% in adults under the age of 60 and around 1 in 5 of all adults with a macrocytic anemia. As mentioned, there is a higher prevalence in vegans as well as the elderly and women who are pregnant. What about pernicious anemia itself? How common is that? Well, autoimmune pernicious anemia is rare. It affects about 50 to 200 people per 100,000 people in the UK. It is more common over 70 years of age. And because of its autoimmune etiology, we should have a lower threshold for excluding it in people with other autoimmune conditions, such as hypothyroidism, Addison's disease, vitiligo and type 1 diabetes. Notably, all those with a diagnosis of pernicious anemia are at increased risk of atrophic gastritis and gastric malignancies and therefore should be referred for a gastroscopy at diagnosis. So what are the clinical features of vitamin B12 deficiency? Well, as we all know, symptoms and signs are non-specific and present insidiously, which is why it's a real challenge for us to diagnose it in primary care. Lethargy, malaise, unsteadiness, hair loss and pins and needles can occur. There might be a history of weight loss or diarrhea if there's coexisting malabsorption. Pallor, knuckle pigment, hyperpigmentation and shortness of breath may be evident if anemic. And neuropsychiatric sequelae include peripheral neuropathy, limb weakness, gait abnormalities, depression, and cognitive decline. Now, importantly, these neurological sequelae can occur in the absence of anemia or other hematological abnormalities. So we should consider checking vitamin B12 levels in anyone with these neurological signs or symptoms. In severe vitamin B12 deficiency, subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord can occur, which presents as a slowly progressive peripheral sensory neuropathy with an associated sensory ataxia. The earliest signs of this are often loss of proprioception or vibration sense. Now, who should we suspect vitamin B12 deficiency in? Well, we should suspect vitamin B12 deficiency in anyone with the signs and symptoms I've already outlined, especially in the presence of the risk factors and conditions I mentioned earlier on, and even in the absence of anemia. We should also suspect vitamin B12 deficiency in anyone with an incidental finding of a macrocytosis, MCV over 100, again with or without anemia. Now, we should be aware a coexisting iron deficiency may prevent the development of macrocytosis in a B12 deficient individual and a microcytic anemia may even be present. So if we do suspect iron deficiency, we should check a ferritin level. A low ferritin is diagnostic of an iron deficient anemia.
And actually, the BMJ paper tells me around one in five individuals with pernicious anemia have a coexisting iron deficiency. So perhaps worth checking a ferritin in all with vitamin B12 deficiency. Now, other hematological findings in vitamin B12 deficiency include a mild leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, a pancytopenia, and also hypersegmented neutrophils on a blood film. Currently, there is no evidence to support universal screening for vitamin B12 in def deficiency in all our patients. This may lead to challenging treatment dilemmas and also, of course, over-medicalization. Usually, a vitamin B12 level of less than 150 picomoles per litre is accepted as a cutoff for vitamin B12 deficiency. But check with your local lab as commercial assays can vary. In older, more frail individuals at risk of falls, I tend to have a higher threshold for considering vitamin B12 replacement, around 250 picomoles per litre or even higher on occasion because of dietary insufficiency, but also potential benefits improving sensory nerve function and subsequent reduction in falls risk. So what other investigations might we consider in primary care? Labs vary, but locally here in Edinburgh, if vitamin B12 deficiency is detected, an intrinsic antibody test is automatically requested, which is helpful, of course, to exclude autoimmune pernicious anemia. A blood film is also useful as myeloproliferative conditions such as myelodysplasia can present with macrocytosis with associated vitamin B12 abnormalities. And as already mentioned, you may also see hypersegmented neutrophils on a blood film. Now, it's also useful to check folate levels. Folate acts synergistically with B12 for its cellular function and therefore should be checked and corrected as appropriate. B12 and folate deficiency can coexist, particularly in malabsorptive states or nutritional deficiencies. So where do we find folate? Folate is found in liver, yeast, nuts, spinach and other green vegetables. Causes of deficiency include inadequate dietary intake, especially in older individuals, malabsorptive states such as inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease, situations of increased cell turnover such as malignancy and also certain drugs including anticonvulsants, trimethoprim and methotrexate which is why our patients on methotrexate usually take 5 milligrams folic acid weekly the day after their methotrexate tablets. As a reminder, we should be counselling pregnant women to take 400 micrograms folic acid daily from planning a pregnancy until at least 12 weeks gestation to reduce the risk of neural tube defects. A higher 5 milligram dose should be taken if the pre pregnant mum in question has a background of celiac disease, diabetes, is taking anti-epilepsy medication or has a BMI over 30 kilograms per meter squared. Now importantly, in older people, we should check and correct any vitamin B12 deficiency before prescribing folate supplementation 
as this can mask the hematological manifestations of vitamin B12 deficiency, leading to the neuropsychiatric complications I mentioned earlier on. Finally, management of vitamin B12 deficiency. So the current BNF, the British Society for Hematology, and a nice clinical knowledge summary published during 2019 give us some useful guidance for vitamin B12 replacement in primary care. And furthermore, the British Society of Hematology have also issued guidance for vitamin B12 replacement during this COVID-19 pandemic, which I will also summarize. So what does the BNF say? Well, the current BNF suggests for pernicious anemia and other macrocytic anemias without neurological involvement, we should initially administer one milligram hydroxocobalamin intramuscularly three times a week for two weeks, then one milligram every two to three months. However, if there is evidence of neurological involvement, we should initially administer one milligram hydroxocobalamin intramuscularly on alternate days until no further improvement in symptoms, then give one milligram hydroxocobalamin two monthly. After treatment, we're advised to check in full blood count at seven to 10 days and also at eight weeks to ensure that any anemia or macrocytosis is resolving. Routine monitoring of vitamin B12 levels is not required, but can be checked after one to two months if there is no clinical improvement. The NICE clinical knowledge summary suggests for non-dietary vitamin B12 deficiencies such as pernicious anemia, previous gastric surgery, inflammatory bowel disease, we should administer hydroxocobalamin intramuscularly lifelong. During this pandemic, the British Society of Hematology suggests discussing the need for intramuscular hydroxocobalamin injections individually with patients and the risks involved in attending our GP surgeries. If this risk-benefit ratio is not deemed favorable, then as an alternative, oral cyanocobalamin can be offered at a dose of one milligram daily until IM injections can be safely resumed. For those with dietary vitamin B12 deficiency, the NICE clinical knowledge summary suggests that people take oral cyanocobalamin 50 to 150 micrograms daily between meals or have twice yearly one milligram hydroxocobalamin IM injections. Vegans may require lifelong treatment, whereas in others, it can be stopped once replete in vitamin B12 and the diet has improved. What about during this pandemic? Well, during this pandemic, the British Society of Hematology suggests offering oral cyanocobalamin 50 to 150 micrograms daily between meals for those with dietary vitamin B12 deficiency already established on IM injections. And we should recheck serum vitamin B12 levels before recommencing IM hydroxocobalamin as some may not require restarting. Now, the British Society of Hematology do point out that many of these individuals with original dietary deficiency will have adequate levels of vitamin B12 
and can actually safely stop taking their vitamin B12 for up to one year due to adequate liver storage of vitamin B12. Personally, I reckon this might be a good opportunity to cease IM injections and permanently continue with oral replacement, especially if diet has improved. And to finish, a quick note on metformin and vitamin B12 deficiency. Metformin is the Volkswagen of diabetes drugs, isn't it? A long-established heritage, tried and tested, but nasty omissions. And it's because of these GI side effects that we sometimes see vitamin B12 deficiency with long-term metformin use. So how do we make sense of this in primary care? Well, importantly, there's no current evidence or guidelines supporting routine screening of vitamin B12 in those individuals taking metformin. However, we have numerous, albeit small, lower quality studies associating metformin with vitamin B12 deficiency in a dose and time dependent manner. Pragmatically, I would suggest simply continuing to check an annual full blood count for everyone on metformin as part of the annual review and only checking vitamin B12 and folate levels if a macrocytosis becomes evident or if any symptoms or signs of deficiency develop, for example, a peripheral neuropathy. If someone on metformin is found to be vitamin B12 deficient, then we can simply follow the guideline I out outlined earlier on in terms of vitamin B12 replacement. So thank you all for listening to this podcast on investigating vitamin B12 deficiency and pernicious anemia in primary care. I hope you found it helpful. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which are available on all major platforms. Get in touch via social media at Dr. Kevin Fernando or email kevin at gpnotebook.co.uk if you have any questions, comments or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at www.gpnotebookeducation.com to register for our virtual GP Notebook study groups and also to download free resources and shortcuts to make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care.